Hey there, dive buddies, and welcome to the 50th episode of the Scuba Goat Podcast. This marks over two years of the show and its superb content from a vast array of ocean lovers. Today, I am joined by a man who, through his own successes, has managed to retire long before his own 50th and redirect that determination to succeed on coral conservation. A successful businessman, surfer, diver, and artist now turned conservationist, Jolian Collier founded the not-for-profit organization Counting Coral a little over two years ago. Utilizing his skills from the construction industry, Jolian set about designing a sculptural coral bank with several goals in mind. The main goal, of course, a platform for coral propagation with the additional intentions of attracting stakeholders in the projects from corporations, resorts, tourists and locals alike. By creating an environment that appeals to the masses, Jolian and his team also teach the stakeholders about their reefs and raise awareness of the importance of the coral in our world and indeed the Earth's life cycle. Jolian, welcome to the show, buddy. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. I really love your show. Oh, good on you, good on you. I did have a sneaky peek into the background, you know, when we uh, we, we got put in touch with, uh, what's her name, Catherine, and uh, had a sneaky peek to see what, you, what you're doing. And I see that you've had a, a few chats yourself and uh, one of my good buddies there, Christina Zanato. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we love Christina. She's awesome. Big advocate for the sharks and the ocean and uh, we're hoping to actually work with her in the future so we'll see how that goes oh that'd be good yeah have you got an opportunity to get over there and, and dive with her at some point no not yet um we've been so focused on uh fiji for the last uh, couple years that we're just keeping all our uh, attention on that on those reefs and being in that region of the world for right now um but we, we are expanding pretty soon within the next year and a half so we hope to kind of just you know reach out and start those dialogues because what we do is an incredibly uh, complex and long process that we go down these roads and then all of a sudden we hit a brick wall and we can't get past that brick wall and we've just wasted months so we're very very cautious about the directions that we go with our organization because it's very very complicated yeah yeah um well i'll tell you what before we get into the uh, complexities of uh, counting coral um let, let's back it right the way back up and and just find out where where did your your link with the ocean first evolve well so i grew up uh in england so it's an island we're <laughs> fully surrounded by water but i was very fortunate <laughs> as a young kid I uh, grew up in Torquay, so we were kind of close to what they consider the English Riviera, even though that's a very large stretch to even call it a Riviera. Um, but, you know, the ocean was there. We used to go cliff jumping as youngsters. You know, we didn't have the rules that the youngsters have these days. We'd jump off a 100-foot cliff and miss the rocks barely and, you know, survive and laugh about it and have fun. I uh, started snorkeling at a very young age, actually, on Tor Abbey Sands. And that's where it all kicked it off for me. And then um, I was lucky to fast forward, like to be able to come to Malibu, California when I was a young kid because my dad moved out here and uh, I used to visit him on summer holidays. Got into surfing, uh, got into boogie boarding and got into diving, then went to Fiji on a trip uh, when I was in my early 20s. 
and as soon as I saw those coral reefs, those oceans, those waves, I was like madly hooked for uh, videography work. So I bought a camera, bought a housing, went to Fiji every year for 13 years filming the surfers. I was one of the first people <laughs> to actually start. I was one of the first people to actually start filming and sell D, selling DVDs back in the day. Um, most people were doing images, and I was working from the mainland resorts, not the you know, Tavarua and Namutus, which cost you an absolute arm and a leg and they're super restrictive back in those days when you could surf on like you know cloud breaks and namutu's left and breaks like that so i would surf all the uh, i would film all the other stuff that you just your average surfer could get in the lineup on and you know i'd smash it every year selling them the dvds have enough money to travel the islands and i found i found myself filming a lot of reefs uh while i was waiting for the surface to drop in on a 15 foot wave just absolutely bricking it because they're not used to that size <laughs> of wave you know so it's kind of cool in that respect so that's how i kind of fell in the, the with the love of oceans and coral reefs from being a kid to then traveling the world and then finding fiji awesome awesome and um obviously that was in your your 20s but back in you you permanently moved to california by this time yeah i'd actually made the the leap at 19 uh to move out here okay and that's where my diving career kind of kicked off because we're right here next to the beach and uh a good buddy of mine actually i was doing a job for him and uh you know because i'm in the construction industry so he, he was kind mm -hmm. of like a really cool landscaper guy he used to be a commercial abalone diver and sea urchin diver off the coast here when it was fruitful times for abalone and I saw an old dive kit in his garage when we were working. I was like, what's that, man? He's like, oh, it's a, you know, it's a tank. And I'm like, when we're talking tank, I'm talking a tank with a plastic board with <laughs> canvas straps. I'm not joking. This is something from Jacques Cousteau days. And he's like, hey. <laughs> I was just about to say. <laughs> oh, no, it's 100% like 1970s, something like that. Yeah. And because those boys back in those days didn't care, they're abalone guys, right? They'd chuck on their gear, drop down, just go nuts, get in abalone and come back up. So he goes, do you want to have a go at it? I was like, yeah. So he chucked me in the pool and I was breathing and bubbling away. And I think I was like 20, maybe 20 at that time, maybe 21. And... uh mm -hmm. I jumped in the pool. I said, dude, this is awesome. How do I get in the ocean? He's like, oh, let's go to the beach next week. I was like, all right, sweet. So we went down to <laughs> went down to the beach. And for anyone who's listening is a diver, this is a big no-no or want to be a diver. If you're a, if you're a diver, you already know this. But he basically gave me a weight belt and this canvas strap regulator and uh, you know pressure gauge and sent me off on my own. Goes, just go out there and you know go down. Whatever you do, don't hold your breath on the way. <laughs> so I believed him that this was normal. <laughs> I just swam out, <laughs> dropped down, went through the kelp beds. Obviously, super dangerous. Went through all the kelp beds, had a good time, came up, came back, and that was it. I was totally hooked on diving, and uh, it's been a relentless pursuit of diving ever since and videography work and surfing and everything else to do with the ocean you know? <laughs> but yeah and then 35 years later you did your open water yeah <laughs> pretty much <laughs> i think because i'm old no one asked for my card anymore i could have been uncertified this whole time i think <laughs> oh dear and uh, did you um was it that point there where you started to um you know, moving to getting your own gear and maybe getting certified uh, and taking a, a camera down with you to to get uh, better angles or something for the surfers or was it more for the reefs? Uh, it was pretty much immediate. As soon as I come out with that tank on my back, like dragging, 
dragging myself up on the shore because obviously I'm exhausted, never done that before. I immediately went to a place mm. called Sport, Sport Chalet, which is a sports center, took the course straight away with my buddy. And then we just started getting a good community of friends joining the, the crew. And then back in those days, yeah. like Sports Chalet had had um, uh, instructors, but the instructors would do these dive trips and the Sports Chalet didn't care if they did these trips with all the students. It was like, hey, if you're certified and you want to go on a trip, that's their business. So we would go, you know, Mexico, Hawaii, all these places and just travel with these guys. And we're talking mental, mental cases, slightly unhinged, not right in the head, doing like, you know drinking till four o'clock in the morning every night and then diving all day long i mean relentlessly crazy party people i wasn't quite in that wheelhouse for me so i'd kind of like creep off to bed at like 10 at night because i'm like i don't want to drive uh dive while i've been drinking it doesn't feel good i'm already sick on a boat anyway but it was just like this passion for diving you 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 know what it's like once you're hooked on diving you can't really stop in my opinion anyway so it was just a relentless yeah. pursuit of just enjoying life you know what i mean and having that yeah. Yeah. adventure of the unknown i mean back in those days i mean there were still places you could explore in those days and i'm not that old i'm only 50 right but back uh, 30 years mm. ago you could still travel the world and go to places where there's no one been you could still dive spots yeah. that were pretty hard to get to. You know, I've been to Tonga and remote islands diving with, you know, humpback whales. I mean, you don't get to do that stuff these days with regulations and stuff. So it was really a cool time to explore the oceans. And, you know, once once I went to Fiji on my uh, round the world tour and I was surfing, I realized it was a big market for videographer work because, like I say, anyone who was doing shooting back in those days... We're only shooting the big boy resorts, which cost five, six thousand dollars a week, and you had to have twenty-one people book. You had to book out the whole island with your crew. You couldn't just tag along, so they were exclusive. Mm. But for your average surfer, no one was doing anything. So as soon as I jumped into the water, started filming, we'd go back to the resort, at the bar, and I'd edit at the bar, and then I'd put it yeah. up on the big screen, and all the lads are like, "Oh my god, you know, can I book you for tomorrow?" And I'd start booking three, four guys at 150 dollars a dvd and you know doing 500 dollars a day of just chilling out in fiji surfing and filming <laughs> filming for a few hours so that was my vacation money so i was super stoked with that you know and that's where the, the reef kicked in really heavily for me because i would spend so much time with the camera in the water filming reefs and then it was like i'm there to film surfers but i'm filming the reef and then all of a sudden they're dropping in on the wave and i'd lift the camera up and go thank god i got that shot because he just paid me 150 bucks <laughs> you know but i'd be filming the sharks and the turtles and all that going through the lineup of the surf because when the surf would peel up like a 15 foot wave when it peels up you can see the shark swimming in the backside of it and you had a really different perspective of coral reefs and the life when those waves pick up. So I just thought it was like a cool lens that you could look through the wave and see the wildlife, you know, seeing big schools of fish cruising past like a TV screen because there's a wall of water in front yeah. of you. is super interesting and fun for me. That sounds amazing. And your, um, your, your surfer that's paying you 150 bucks, you can, oh, you know, there's your 
there's your toe in the top left corner of those three <laughs> second frames of five Honestly, minutes of video. That's what it was like. <laughs> yeah, you got to understand, like these boys are coming from home reefs, right? So they're like doing beach breaks or point breaks. You come out to Fiji, you're in the middle of the ocean. There's no marker points. It's just a flat, like submerged reef, and that water pulls up over the reef. So you can't have like, normally as a surfer, you're in the lineup, you've got a house over there and a house over there. You can triangulate your position. You know where the waves are coming. But out in the reef, you've got no idea what's going on. The, the water's pulling you everywhere. So it would take those boys about two hours before they even drop in on the first wave. So I've already surfed a couple hours, realizing they got to get their nerves out. So I'm pretty happy that I've got my surf in. Then I go grab my camera as they start to get comfortable with the lineup and figuring out the swells yeah. and stuff and then i'd film for maybe two hours and then surf an hour and go home do like four or five yeah, hours it's just a, just as well it's warm water right eh? oh it's too hot you'd be baking camera would warm up yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> what was the um what was the first camera that you were using then it was a p200 sony analog tape camera and a ocean image housing so it was like a aluminum brick <laughs> <laughs> with yeah. a tiny with a tiny little tape camera in the middle of it because that was the only housing camera at that time that was just super easy um but you know yeah. i got some good shots it wasn't like super pro and it didn't have to be because i wasn't like filming pro guys for like roxy or you know quicksilver or anything it was just a bunch of tourists trying to grab a good dvd of themselves because no one's ever taken the time to film them you know yeah yeah, yeah. and what what year was this again Roughly? This was two thousand one onwards, okay. so it was it was when Mac came out with um, uh, iMovie. So it's not like I could, and I only had a hundred gig hard drives at that time. So imagine <laughs> I'm trying to edit all this material on a hundred gig hard drive plus whatever computer space I had with a tape analog camera using iMovie because that's all I could get to go down there with as a portable yeah. unit that worked out really super like easy for me. So mm. I've literally looking at this computer now, the only disc that I have of that content is trapped in this computer because my computer hard <laughs> DVD player crapped out on me and the DVD stuck in it. <laughs> Cause I'd have to keep chucking it. I'd have to keep chucking the material away I'd have to delete it all because I couldn't keep enough space on a hundred gig hard drive to keep that editing going for months on end, you know? Yeah. So I lost a lot of footage, unfortunately. Wow. Yeah. For me, I was starting to get a little bit um, bored with with teaching, and it was becoming mundane, which was moving away from the whole reason why I was doing the job. And then, you know, at some point, I didn't have many customers, and I took a camera, and it was like scuba diving had just completely rejuvenated within my life. It was completely different type of diving. And um, dare I say it, I'm probably further down the road now of being possibly one of those annoying old fellas with a big fucking camera in his hand that just <laughs> has too much light and too much time on his hands. But um, yeah, it's it, for me having a camera in your hand and diving, the two just they're just intrinsically linked, and, and I can't. I, I enjoy to get, I enjoy diving, but if I've not got a camera in my hand to to capture a moment or a photo or a bit of video then it's nowhere near as fun. And that's, that's just for me. And I think that's the evolution of my progression through diving. Um, so when you're saying 
that you've got all this stuff that's just a memory now and, and you know lost in the uh, lost in the ether of the tapes um, I kind of think of how many hard drives I've got sitting in the cupboard here behind me there must be five or six terabyte of shite that I'll probably never look at but <laughs> it's still there yeah I don't think I could die without a camera no. something missing when I'm when I'm when I'm in the water and I don't have something it's weird I agree with you on yeah that one. yeah yeah well, I had a. Um, I also had a. There's a, a good buddy of mine in in Sydney. He's got a, a store macro mode, and he, he specifically does underwater photography, and he's um, really really good. Um, and he heard I was going down to the GB, up to the GBR, and said, "Oh, you need to try this because we were going to get the coral spawning, hopefully on video." So he's like, "Take this, take this, take this, take this," and. Um, it's just as well I've got a really strong back because carrying a rucksack and pulling a wheelie bag and trying to pretend that there's only seven kilos in each one is it's a bit of a feat <laughs> yeah it's it's it can be quite complicated with all the gear we just did an installation in Fiji we had two a7s Sony uh, s3 Sony cameras two housings five GoPros three drones <laughs> not to mention all the dive gear we had underwater drills grinders and those batteries are huge they weigh an absolute ton some of the uh, um, some of the gear is just ridiculous and we're pulling it all through customs hoping we're not going to get a hit bringing in tools and stuff like that you, you know it's comical diving's comical you just drag sun so much stuff around with you and you can't help it <laughs> yeah 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 well hey let's um, let's introduce um, the listeners to actually why you're on the show and, and, and what you're doing so um, let's let's talk about counting coral yeah so um, I am the president of counting coral which is a registered 501c3 non-profit and we design build install and donate sculptural underwater marine parks specifically designed to house coral so in in a simple way of putting at it it's like a coral nursery but very artistically designed and um, we plant the coral on that nursery as you would any nursery that you're trying to grow out coral on we just happen to make it look a little bit nicer and when we do that we tick uh, quite a considerable amount of boxes that other organizations aren't really ticking um, in terms of what needs to happen nowadays with retention spans of people and social media and stuff like that so we definitely took a very unusual approach to what we do in that respect hmm. and um, I mean that kind of covers the, my, my initial thoughts when Catherine got in, in touch and I started to have a look at what you were doing was what's the difference between counting coral and you know um, a, a dive shop in Thailand somewhere putting some metal frames underwater and attaching some, some coral structures to uh, assist in the growth um, so having that design element behind it um, I assume that is bringing um, a separate crowd to or a separate audience to what you're doing other than just scuba divers would it be fair to say that? Yeah um, so I'll run you through pretty much how I approached what I thought to be uh, kind of a few missing links in the whole uh, conservation world, right? So from my perspective, 
conservation is in part mainly awareness driving uh, and action steps. So if you can have an awareness driver that literally goes into an immediate action step, that to me is conservation because you're you're addressing the issue, you're shining a light on the issue, and then you're actually going and doing something about it, right? So if you're that dive company in uh, Thailand or wherever it may be, and you've got wireframes on the floor, sea floor, well, that's not really inspiring to tourists. And then you can't really monetize that. You can, and people are doing it, and they're going, hey, come on, eco dive, you can see the nurseries and the coral, and it's all good, come plant a coral, adopt a coral, and all the rest of it. And it works fine, it's great, right? I mean, but it's not for me as a diver, an artist, a photographer, a videographer, that is not inspiring. So I wanted to tick that box. So when you do have a snorkeler or you have a diver and they're diving on this, you know, conservation effort that's being undertaken, uh, I want it to be inspiring. I want it to be something that you would swim down with your GoPro, take a shot of it, share it on social media. And guess what? You've done my work for me because I don't have to go and do that awareness driver as much anymore. I don't have to bang on doors and go, look what we're doing. We're doing coral reef restoration. Look how cool it is. Well, somebody else is doing that worldwide for us now. And we have hundreds of people doing that on a daily basis, sharing it on their social medias all the time. We're seeing, we're getting tagged in our on our Instagrams and stuff like that, that they've visited this place, they've taken a picture and they're now sharing it with their network. So we've ticked that awareness driver by proxy by building these cool uh, underwater sculptures, right? And then mm -hmm. when we do those sculptures and we plant them with coral, we're using that, that those sculptures as a coral gene bank. Uh, and this is something that is slightly unusual too because a lot of coral conservation efforts are we go get say corals of opportunity and for those who don't know that that could be coral that has been snapped off in a cyclone and it's tumbling around on the sand and you leave it there for too long it's going to die or it could be an anchor that's been dropped uh, or a line that's been towed over a reef and it's just snapped a bunch of stuff and more often than not uh, it's tourism so tourists would be standing on the reef and we were just in Fiji going, I can't believe people are still doing this in this day and age, literally standing on reef. And we're diving behind them, collecting the broken coral. Uh, that's how yeah. bad it's getting these days. So we'll then take, just for argument's sake, these corals of opportunity and we'll put them on the sculpture. Um, but in addition to that, we're going after rare coral species. So we were just in Fiji diving, say, a 10 to 15 mile square area. And we found one coral that demonstrated a uniqueness that around all the other corals that were there, it, that species didn't exist anywhere else. So for us, that's a viable um, coral species that we want to propagate. So we'll actually go and take a piece. So that's not a coral of opportunity. That's actually us harvesting from that coral because it's demonstrating that genetic um, rarity. And then we'll put that yeah. on our sculptures. And then we also go after what's called hotspot coral, which is um, corals that have demonstrated a resilience to climate change and the ocean temperatures rising, which is one of the main causes of coral dying is the ocean temperatures are rising. And we can go through all that later, but stick into the sculptures. We go after the hotspot coral that have demonstrated um, those resilience. And we can literally see it in real time. So we have, uh, say, a patch of um, staghorn coral, uh, one section is completely dead, uh, the other section is half dead, and the other section is thriving as if nothing's going on. So we go after that thriving coral and the coral that's half dead, 
and we put that onto the sculptures because it's already demonstrating a genetic superiority over its own family member that may not have um, that strong relationship with the algae that resides within coral because they have a symbiotic relationship with uh, this algae called Zoans of Hella. Um, so we go after those and we plant those onto the onto the sculptures. Now we have a sculptural coral gene bank, which is now being housing these rare corals, corals of opportunity and resilient corals. We allow them to grow out. And this is the kind of cool part about it. We allow those to grow out to spawning maturity. Um, so we allow them to go through spawning cycles. We allow them to grow big enough, ready to harvest. And we call those the mother plant or the parent plant. And we'll take then small fragments off of those uh, sculptural corals because now we have a controlled environment. We're no, no longer having to go out into the reef, find corals of opportunity and put them onto nurseries, grow them out and plant them back out into the reef. We now have a conveyor belt of coral being grown in one spot that we harvest, plant onto secondary nurseries, allow those secondary fragments to grow out to maybe two years, three years, then those corals go back onto the reef and the parent plant continues the cycle of producing that rare genetic species, that corals opportunity and that uh, climate resilient coral. So it's doing the job for us. Uh, and that's where we kind of differ from a lot of the other conservation organizations. Yeah, I think the big, the big element that you've got there is that you're using your um, areas of growth away from the reef and then reintroducing those um, corals back to its origins that's a that's a, a large element that a lot of locations wouldn't be doing it would just be staying and remaining on the the, the framework that they've initially put in yeah it's a lot more work what we're doing but for me that work is valuable because i want a reefscape to be natural i don't want wireframes on a reefscape that's not what i'm in this game for I'm there to mm. rebuild those reefs so they look organic and natural again. Even though we'll have to take those corals that have grown out over a two-year period and then plant them onto the reefscape, we plant them in a very unique way. We've developed our own technologies for that, um, which we'll probably share next year once we've implemented it. Um, mm. Kind of similar to a lot of other people, but we're trying to do a different approach. But then, then part of the other, like, elements to what we do so we do what what we call a closed loop system so we have the conservation we have the awareness driver and we have the gene bank right so conservation and the gene bank are kind of the same thing we have the awareness driver that we've we're demonstrating the artwork through building it showing people on tiktok shipping it you know droning the the boats coming up with the the parts we sink it into the ocean we're filming all this stuff we're showing off this art piece we're planting coral on it but then we have a marketing opportunity for our partners so we we tend to want to put our sculptures near resorts so you can mm -hmm. have now stakeholders in the environment when you create a stakeholder in an environment they tend to protect it a little bit more than they did before so now they have a marketing opportunity for their resort to say hey come and dive on counting coral sculptural art piece it's a conservation effort, but there's a cool point of interest on your trip that you may want to enjoy. Come stay with us. Now they're vested. They're involved now. Um, mm. So they get to tell our story by proxy because we go back every year. Hey, guess what? We just planted 400 corals. They get to say, hey, we've been part of this planting process. We've partnered with Carrot and Coral. We've grown this out. We've 
help them, you know, whatever the partnership details are, uh, kind of plays out for many years. So they've got this constant story and we're going to give them content so they can constantly update their websites, their marketing teams. So they now have fresh content every year to demonstrate their commitment to the environment. So stakeholders are incredibly important when it comes to protecting anything anywhere on our planet. If people don't care, they don't care. They'll chop down trees, they'll kill rhinoceroses, and they'll just tear up reef with uh, dynamite fishing, cyanide fishing. They don't care, right? But you bring in new revenue streams for local organizations, local communities, because can, communities can now do snorkeling trips and uh, market themselves to be able to bring more revenues in. And then we have the last part of that closed loop system is uh, working with the local communities. It is so valuable to understand that when you involve the local communities, you always win. You'll never lose that battle yeah. because you're supporting them. So what we do in that respect is we've asked the resort that we're currently working with to say, hey, part of these revenue streams that you're making money from need to go back to the village. So we have a donation program set up that uh, revenues are going to go back to the chiefs. Now, the chiefs in Fiji own the reef rights. They've given us permission to allow to do that. So it's only just that we give back. But in addition to that, every time we go back to Fiji, we have after-school uh, clubs because um, mm -hmm. we've asked the school district uh, if we can educate the youngsters. Uh, we're talking kids from, say, uh, 10 to 15 years old. Um, so we do an hour every day to go in, teach them about coral, teach them about environment, teach them about fishing practices, teach them about uh, our work. Um, and then now, we're, wow, we're really invested. Now the community is invested because those young people are now being educated. And you'd be surprised that in Fiji, they, they're next to the ocean. They're dealing with reefs every day and they're stepping on it, breaking it, ripping it up. They don't see the value. They don't understand the connectivity with coral, fish, environment, humanitarian types. It's all connected, right? So we educate them. Mm. So that, And then that's the closed close loop system where we've ticked all the boxes we could possibly tick in one installation. And then we do that over a course of, say, 10 years, and we get to rebuild a reef or many reefs over 10 years. So it's a long, long mm. process and very complicated to even pull it that is. off. Yeah. It's got, it, you've got to be um, kind of excited. I know it's probably exciting and very frustrating getting, getting everything done all the time, but five six seven years down the line when th your installations are you know effectively in full bloom and uh, these people that are looking at, uh, at ways to to support conservation uh, to to show that they're, they're in the green party or whatever um they're going to be kicking themselves for not getting on board in the early days because they're, <laughs> they're, they're going to have to wait again for you know to to sing the praises five six seven years later down the line when they've got a, a new reef of their own out the front yeah um you know i want the clock to move forward but also it's slightly terrifying because the future for coral reefs is pretty dismal <laughs> but you know yeah. we're just trying to put our best foot forward in a very small ecosystem that we think we could help and you know it's also mm. the outplanting process has to be very specific so you can't plant coral in three feet of water anymore and expect in five years it's going to survive because it's toast um, there's a lot yeah. of reefs that we visited in Fiji that are just absolutely dead, gone. Uh, while we were there, resorts and their managers were coming over to us 
asking if we could help because no one's up there doing this work, right? So you have countless reef systems that are just in complete collapse. And it's sad to see because we literally have to tell them there's no hope and we're not even going to put our time into it. We're really, really sorry, but we cannot help you. Um, this is too far gone, too down the road. We're going to have to focus on coral reefs, let us say 70% in decline because at least there's hope that we could bring it to maybe 50% of its coverage. Because right now, most reefs are about 30% coral coverage, maybe 50 if you're lucky, up in that region. Mm. We were hoping to push it to 70, maybe 80% coral coverage in the next 10 years. Uh, and these are large systems, you know, this is not like a small area. We're, we're doing eight different reefs. We have a very interesting way of approaching what we do too. So each one of our sculptures has its own. We do different, very, very different sculptures on different areas, but this one particular had eight limbs to it, much like a starfish. It was a centerpiece and eight, eight legs you could use them, say. And each leg houses a specific reef of coral. So we go to that reef, we harvest that, we put it onto that leg, we label it, we know that leg is this reef. So when we go into the production line of all that coral, it all goes back to that original reef. So we have eight reefs in total that we'll be restoring over the next 10, 15, 20 years. So we know that coral gene is going back to its home origins. And then we plant it at, say, 10 feet, 10 feet to 15 feet. So we know it's at least got a hope. So there'll be a little band of coral uh, at that elevation. Um, and we'll see how it goes over 10 years with the ocean temperatures rising. And if we need to shift them down a little lower into cooler waters, then, you know, we've got that genetic stock still being produced that we can uh, do that with. Mm -hmm. And um, how do you, um, have you got some sort of like uh, science geeks that are assisting you? Because I can imagine that over a period of time, that is there a possibility of, of stronger corals within uh, your installation being able to dominate the weaker corals and effectively obliterate them? Um, yeah, so we work with marine scientists all over the world. We got three marine biologists in our team. We have our director of science. We got, uh, we, we're basically covered in that respect. <laughs> and we're yeah. not short of, we're not short of marine biologists because, you know, you come out of school and you want to be a marine biologist and yet you've got no hours under your belt. You've got to prove yourself. So there's a lot of people running around going and we get tapped up all the time. Can we come and help? Can we volunteer our time? Blah, blah, blah. And yeah, it's wonderful. We appreciate people reaching out to us, but you know, it's not something we take lightly. So we want experienced people. Uh, unfortunately mm. we built a pretty good team of experienced people. Um, and they're teaching me. I'm, I'm, I'm a construction guy. I've got a passion for the ocean. I'm a citizen scientist. It's all pretty common sense shit when you actually put your mind to it, but it takes a lot of putting your mind to getting behind all this stuff, right? So then I'm sitting there being educated by one of our guys. He's like, this is a such and such and such and such coral. I'm like, excuse me, could you repeat that again? Because that is a foreign language you're talking to me. I understand like staghorn, <laughs> uh, you know, plate coral, all of that. When you go into those scientific names, you lose me. But, you know. I'm capable of doing what we need to do to build a really comprehensive team that knows what they're doing and don't mess up. But listen, everybody's going to mess up in this game, right? This is all new territory for so many people. I mean, they're only just understanding that that relationship that Coral has with the Zoan Zemfella is 
the key to coral survival. So now they're looking at the genetics mm. of this algae. That how do they propagate that algae that's now heat resistant or climate resistant? So it's not so much about the coral anymore. It's now about this host um, plant essentially that's living in this animal that they need to focus on to see how we can get those strains of algae to remain in the coral during a heat event you know so it's comp it's complicated yeah. and it's a moving target but from my perspective it's too late to be messing about you've got to put your hands in and get dirty and go for it and if you make mistakes then so be it you correct those mistakes and you keep moving forward otherwise you just wouldn't make the decision to do anything you just spin your heels that, that's right yeah. yeah i'm a big advocate of fucking up you know if you if you if you mess up and you 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 make errors then you learn from it and that's the only way you're going to learn you know it's it, if you stay safe and within your theory box then nothing's going to get done really is it nothing changes 100% i'm in the yeah i'm in the construction industry if i sat around and questioned how to do certain things i'd be without a job people say to me can you do this i say i say yes I, and i don't know how to do it but i figure it out and i pull it off but i make those mistakes that i learn for the future and it will cost me I'm a, i do jobs for free sometimes because i didn't do it in the time frame i didn't do it on budget and i'll suck that up because the value is the learning experience in my opinion so if i don't mm. make money on a certain job but i've learned that value and that value proposition translates to another job because now someone's referring me i've won you know what I mean? So yeah. that's my perspective is never stop. Keep moving forward. Otherwise, you're just procrastination is death sentence to like the productive people, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, you, you should um, you should get your marine biologist having a, a quick uh, tete with Jen Matthews at UTS. She was on the show not so long back and we used to yeah, I heard that. in Thailand. She's yeah, she's um she makes me look i mean i, I make myself look stupid but she makes me look really <laughs> stupid uh, <laughs> yeah i listened to your um, podcast that was great <laughs> yeah she's she's something else but um yeah all of the, the all of the stuff that we're trying to protect with coral and and what they're doing there at the university is just simply fantastic and it's only a hop across the water to fiji really you know it's all very close and i i i used to work up in Papua New Guinea and you know see the the GBR last week um, on the outer reefs and the the reef structures and uh, species are so similar you know you could you could lift them and put them in PNG and you wouldn't know the difference that's well, one of those yeah. cool things so we're uh, we know we're going after this coral right so one of our marine biologists we pull up a piece of coral that had been pretty much half killed by a crown of thorns and you know it's this beautiful massive coral and half of it was just laid on the ground bleaching you know because i mean not bleaching but it was in that death cycle essentially because it had been eaten half eaten lots of it fell over we brought it up and we're looking at it and it's got all this polyp structure on it that um he'd never seen before so we sent it off to one of our marine scientist friends took a picture of it and they said hey you better think of a name you may have found another subspecies of coral that has not been documented in fiji and we're like you're joking right and he's like no he said because nothing's been documented in fiji they just say whatever's in australia is in fiji but that's not the case 
and we're hoping we found a new subspecies and we get to name it so unfortunately fiji doesn't let us send the dna out of the country just yet we have to get special permission for it but it's on our sculptures mm. growing out so we're like super excited that we may have found something new that's <laughs> if awesome you can believe it yeah. yeah maybe we'll see what's the, what's the latin name you're going to put to it like jo jolionus collielinus or yeah that's it <laughs> <laughs> Counting Carlos. Oh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, um, where you've got the structure at the moment, is it just the one structure, the one location that you're focusing on? No, we're in negotiations. So, I'm going to preface it all this stuff uh, with saying this I can scale a marine park to hundreds and hundreds of sculptures, I can design whatever I want. I can ship them anywhere in the world. I can weld up thousands of parts. I can install it into the ocean. But guess what the hardest part is? <laughs> making the partnerships and making the deals. We spend yeah. years doing this. I mean, I mean, it's a shoot me now moment, right? Hey, we're going to donate a $60,000 sculpture to you. Create this incredible conservation effort. Do all the work for you for free. Plant thousands of corals. Do you want in? And then they're procrastinating. We don't make the deal. Certain issues come up. They're like, is this a financial viable option for our resort? Blah, 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 blah. And it's like, are you kidding me? You don't, you're saying no to this. So we spend years trying to get locations, trying to make these deals, get permissions. So Fiji happens to be one of those playgrounds that I've played in for so many years. So I know a lot of the managers, resort owners. I know the chiefs personally for many, many years because I've worked with them. I've got community mm. members up there that still know me from 20 years ago that still recognize me because I've been up there so many years. And we hang out and we, we have this connection. So we're in negotiations for another resort. Uh, we're going to do an installation hopefully in March. Uh, and while we're doing that installation, we're going to build out the secondary nursery tables for the first installation. And then we have another opportunity down in the Mamanuka Islands. So we're hoping to do six installations in Fiji in the next two years. That's our general plan. But as I said, negotiations can fall off really quickly. And um, mm. that's the most complicated, difficult part about it. And you would be surprised that you have a hard time giving this away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Didn't you, um, did I uh, see or hear on one of your other podcasts uh, this this issue that you're talking about with partnerships um uh particularly focusing on hawaii yeah we started in hawaii could... so yeah we started in hawaii but it turns out that you got to lease the sea floor <laughs> believe oh, it or not it. so no so you gotta go to um the division of aquatic marine resources i think they call it dar as an acronym uh, and I spent five months. Then we had to hire, you know, get the Army Corps of Engineers to go over our designs. We had to lease the ocean floor. It takes two years to get a permit to even plant coral on it once you put the sculptures in. And you're losing, you know, I think they lost another 5% of their reefs in the last few years. So it's like, okay, you carry yeah. on doing that. See how it works out for you. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, we've got a friend who works for Coral Conservancy out there. He's one of our team members and board members. He has his own non-profit. Um, it's taken him a year just to plant corals of opportunities back on the reef. So that's literally Jesus. a fragment that's fallen off. He just goes, picks it up, and sticks it back on the reef. It took him a year to get that permit. And he's only allowed to work Bloody in specific hell. areas. So, yeah, you watch your, your reefs go, guys, and no one's going to be there to bail you out when you need the help. 
So I gave yeah. up. Well, that's it. Well, I mean, once it's gone, it's gone, isn't it? You can't just you can't... throw a load of money at it and chuck a load of coral in and hope it's going to grow. Well, look, I always say this to people, right? So I say, you know, people don't understand what's actually going on, right? So coral reefs occupy at least one to possibly two percent of equatorial uh, oceanscapes, right? So that's within, say, a fifty-foot range, just a blanket statement, right? So you got Thailand, mm. you know, Indo, all these places, really shallow reefs occupying a very small percentage. They they supply twenty five percent of the population with food directly, indirectly, coastal uh, protections. I mean, the list goes on of what coral reefs are benefits from. Not to least, the very last thing is the medications that are coming from reefs. You know, they're supporting heart disease issues, Alzheimer's issues, cancer research. There's a lot coming out of these reefs, right? And the, there's there's just for argument's sake let's say the great barrier reef you know, i think they've lost about 50 percent of their reefs certain parts are losing upwards of 90 percent you know you can say isolated reefs yes great certain areas are doing really well now you you go to a tree organization that's planting trees right i think ethiopia built, uh, beat the world record for 360 million trees planted in one day uh, that was over oh. India that planted 300 million trees in a day. Um, now, you try and do that on a coral reef system where you've got to have at least a minimum of advanced rescue diving, in my opinion, to dive safely. That's going to take you God knows how much money, plus all your equipment. And then you've got an hour of air to go plant coral, and you got to plant you know, 1,600 miles of it, a mile wide. Are you kidding me? You think this is an easy thing you're doing? You're out of your mind. Me and you could go to the local you know, nursery, pick up a bunch of trees and, a, and, a, and a, a shovel and a bucket of water and plant at least 100 trees, just you and I. Uh, quite yeah. easily in a few days right that's easy conservation you can sequester carbon using trees or rebuilding habitats you try and do that in the ocean mate no way not going to happen mm. yeah. Yeah. so what we're looking yeah. at is gene banks small gene banks that we can just keep a very small stock of genetic superior coral in the hopes that we can continually plant that out because as it dies we can only protect in our organization a very small percentage uh, and in the hopes that that can act as a gene bank for the future. So, I mean, that's a loose, loosely kind of bracketed comment as well, you know. Mm, yeah. And it's unfortunate, but it's, it's you know, it's how we live nowadays. Everything needs funds to be able to be achievable. Um, it's a difficult scenario. How... Um, What's the, what's the long range, you know, rose tinted kind of view? Where do you want to see this in, say, twenty years? Well, so much like the gene bank comment. Um, so just imagine, and this is the big this is the big picture, right? Uh, for me, at least, mm. um, we can do collectively a lot of small gene banks. Uh, but those gene banks have the ability to produce thousands and thousands of corals. Now imagine that gene bank, and we're talking like, I don't know, just you know, use your imagination. Uh, every time I dream, dream big, stuff happens, right? I'm at the top of my game in the building industry in Malibu. I created a non-profit in two years. We've got our first installation in. We're planting thousands of pieces of coral using a completely different technique thinking different dreaming big right so imagine i go to the government of fiji and say hey you've got some waters that are owned by the government you give us those waters and we create a national park 
Now that national park is uh, managed by rangers. So you imagine like say the Grand Canyon, right? You go to the Grand Canyon and there's a state park guy there and it charges you $25 to go in to see the Grand Canyon, right? So it's called a concession. And those concessions are owned by private entities. So you go into that park and there's a restaurant. Well, that concession has been bidded on by somebody to be able to run that restaurant. And the state gives the permission to do that because they don't want to run a restaurant, but they need food in the park for people. So it's very much the same thing in the ocean. We become the concessionaires for that national park. The government pays for it, but we put down, say, seven acres of the largest gene bank in the world for Fiji's, for Fiji's reefs. We have hundreds and hundreds of sculptures. It becomes a very large point of interest for divers all over the world to come and dive on Cow and Coral Sculpture Marine Park because it is so intricately designed and amazing and it's only a small fee to come into the national park. But we get to manage that underneath the national park fees. So essentially, the, the fee to go into the national park sustains non-profit, us as a non-profit. So now we're not scrounging for donations. And honestly, the amount of time we put into getting donations will shock you. And the amount of effort we have to put into it, you just say give up now. It's ridiculous. Um, we're scraping at the bottom barrel. It's not like people are just chucking millions of dollars our way, right? And going, hey, guys, do your best, which we would do if we had that money. But we just don't have that revenue. So, OK, we could be a self-sustaining nonprofit if we run a national park because the concession will pay us to do it. So then we have this self-managed ecosystem where we're creating this gene bank we're supplying the entire nation with coral and we're being paid to do it but we pay the government offers a percentage so they're getting a kickback on the entry to the park fee anyway we're getting a little bit to be self-sustainable and we're doing our job the way we should do it without being hindered by fundraising every single day so that's the yeah, big picture yeah. you know national parks marine protected areas they're needed and they're extremely valuable and then the big yes. picture for uh, Fiji for us is we've already negotiated this deal with uh, the chief up in the Asawas. So it's very complicated chief and family system in Fiji. You have chiefs, Metangalis, clans, all of this type of stuff. Well, the one guy up in Fiji, he's the high chief of half of the island chain. He controls four chiefs. His say kind of goes against everybody else's say, but they've all got to kind of agree to do something mm. and then it happens so give you an example the high chief can say i want this to be a marine protected area and anybody in his world will not fish there they call it a tambu we're not allowed to fish there not allowed to be there but the other chiefs can come in and fish there because they weren't part of that whole big picture deal right so when we mm. did our installation we managed to get all seven chiefs of the entire island chain which they haven't spoken in 27 years to actually sit down, all seven of them, because they're split between the northern chain of the Asawas and the southern chain. Got them all together to agree to create this marine protected area where our park's going. Now no one can fish there. Now we've got a marine protected area. But in condition to that, I said, Chief, listen, do us a favor. Let us map the islands and we'll give you a top recommendations of areas that you can create tambus. So in my opinion, I could create a big marine protected area, but that does nothing for the community. What I want to do is do small isolated pockets where we know we can supply those pockets with coral. We know marine biomass will increase because no one's fishing in that area. That biomass will then swim out into the what we call shipping, uh, what I call, call fishing lanes. So you have, say, 100 marine protected areas 
we the, the Fijians are really good with understanding their environment. So we say you're allowed to ship within these areas and fish between these areas. So then the biomass is spilling out in all these different areas and fish are going into those fishing lanes. And if everybody sticks to those rules, there'd be more fish than you can handle because the production of a reef, once it gets real healthy, is pretty astonishing. I mean, it can go up with upwards of 400% in biomass in a very small period of time, less than 10 years. So he agreed to allow us to map. So while we were there, we mapped one island. When we go back, we're going to map another island and we're going to put a suggestion for him to say hey let's get all the chiefs together again create these marine protected areas slash tambus and just be in agreements so that these are non-touchable areas forever and let the fish start uh living and you know spilling out into these waterways so that's something we're doing right now in the marine then the, the big park is you know down the line hopefully if i can get to talk to somebody of any importance at fiji but it takes time mm. you know those chiefs will start talking we were lucky enough to have the ministry of fisheries come up and officiate the marine protected area with us we had a huge ceremony up there it was awesome uh so we do have that connection in fiji to maybe talk about a national park in the next 10 years we'll see see how it yeah. goes with those um with you know mapping the locations and giving the advice to the chiefs and i'm just thinking to and i forgive me if i get it wrong it's either philippines or indonesia they do a, a similar kind of thing where they, they'll close off a section of the reef for a three to five year period and no one's allowed to fish whatsoever and then rotate it through um i'm just thinking well have you considered that kind of thing for down in fiji because i can imagine some of the villages might be well if i can't fish just off the shore of where i live why can they fish just off the shore where they live and i've got to travel down there um do you have any yeah, of they, those kind of issues that have been raised? They've been doing that for a thousand years in Fiji. That's a very common practice. And I think through Indonesia and all that is a very, it's like crop rotation right on land. You know, once mm. you implement crop rotation, you end up with healthy plants and strong vitamin content in your lettuce and you're eating healthy food, right? So they've understood this for a very long time. But the problem is, okay. so just for argument's sake, the Yasawas didn't have a single resort on it. And then the last 20 years is now 40 resorts. So you've got all these guys yeah. fishing for the resorts. And then you've got the resorts fishing for the resorts themselves because this is the this is kind of the you know, the the big scam with resorts. Or well, not scam, but it, it it's kind of a scam in my sense. They go, Hey, we're off for sports fishing. You come on the boat, five hundred dollars a day, we go catch a fish. You don't actually keep the fish, you take a cut of the fish, and that fish goes in our freezer. So you've just packed our freezer for five hundred dollars a day and you get a small yeah. cut at dinner or a couple of days worth of fish and thank you very much. So it's like the resorts are going out, you know, hooking massive fish, stocking the freezers and people are paying to do that for them. So in my opinion, it's a bit of a scam, but yeah, it is what it is, business, right? Um, yeah, so yeah. in I my mean, opinion, I... if we can protect these areas and not crop rotate, but keep them as consistent uh, production um, areas, then they'll just nonstop produce. They're not going to go into a decline because now you've opened up the fishing rights to it, and then they go and smash it because there's a load of fish in there, and it's like, oh, sweet this huge production you're better off allowing that stuff to spill out into the fishing highways and maintain it for forever and mm. um you know be mindful of where these guys are fishing and saying okay well we won't want to protect that because you are fishing here these are productive grounds but a mile up the way there we could protect that you stick to your fishing grounds and a mile away where you don't go particularly we'll get that reef healthy for you and start biomass production of fish through its natural cycle 
yeah, yeah. Just don't don't tell the uh, Chinese fishing fleet where you're doing it. <laughs> yeah, there's some big boats I might in have Fiji to edit right that now. Bit out. Yeah, there's some <laughs> big boats in Fiji right now. <laughs> really? Oh yeah, huge vessels coming in. This not mm. not good. It's not good at all. But we're talking local stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's a. I mean, uh, the the fishing vessels the industrial fishing vessels clearly aren't local um, on what we're talking about but um, it's something that everyone seems to avoid talking about um, you know the fact that the impact that these things are having and um, uh, you know just decimating what is in the oceans it's just it's making life extremely difficult for the likes of the, the Fijians that are living off the land and the sea and the same for the Papua New Guineans that are you know they don't have KFC down the road, a McDonald's or a supermarket. You know, you've got to go into the jungle or into the ocean and get what you can to survive. Um, I don't know how. <coughs> excuse me. I don't know how it gets regulated, or you know, with companies or um, individuals coming in with millions of dollars and saying, "Hey, give us your fish. This is what you'll get." And it's you know, it's the top one percent that are making these decisions, and everyone else is suffering. Yeah, there's backhanders going on in every country across the world to allow these yeah. fishing boats to come in and just rape the oceans. And it's a very, very destructive practice. And I'm not a big fan of it. And I'll advocate till the day I die not to do that ever again. In my opinion, there should be a worldwide ban on all fishing for 15 years. At least give the ocean a yeah. slight chance. You know, small vessels, uh, radio tracked that can go out into local seas and only catch a very small percentage of fish. And just let the oceans get back to normal. If that takes twenty years, and so be it. I don't really care yeah. about any of the other stuff. I've got no interest in it. I don't care how much money you lose. The money, the money you're gaining now is not going to help anybody in the future for those small gains of money that you know a few individuals are making. Because it's not the fishermen particularly that are making it. You know, you got you know pirates in <laughs> Thailand that are kidnapping people and having you know basically kidnap people on the boats working for free and then they're offloading those fish for peanuts and then once it goes up to the mm. chain the big boys are making massive money um in my opinion it should all be shut down now today if i had my choice yeah yeah I, I'd, I'd be I'd, a, I'd be a tyrannical uh leader if i had my way no one would like me but i'd do it all for the good of great good of humanity you know what i mean <laughs> i'd be a dictator people wouldn't like me very much <laughs> yeah that's a good dictatorship, though. I mean, just giving <laughs> other species a, a chance to catch up. Uh, bloody hell. Yeah, exactly. Um, could you imagine that? Could you imagine how much of a better world it would be if uh, if we just completely stopped eating and fishing fish? Yeah, I haven't eaten fish That's for years, bad. mate. I mean, I, I stopped eating fish yeah. when I went into the oceans off of here, um, Point <clears> Doom. <throat> I went into the marine park and I just saw how beautiful it was. I said, I'm never eating a fish ever again. Um, it's a it's a small lie because I do eat a little fish when I'm in Fiji because I'm with the Fijians and they're fishing every single day and you know it is kind of like a pride for those guys to share their meals and stuff so I do indulge in fish and it's caught locally it's caught sustainably and um, it's kind of considered rude not to participate and we like to be very connected to the community that we're working with so I do bend that rule a little bit there, but that's the only other time I eat fish. Okay, just a couple of quick fire questions for you. All right. Go for it. 
Um, if you could give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? Uh, that would have to be work less. <laughs> <laughs> work less. But then working less, would you have the uh, success that you've got now? Uh, yeah, 100%. Really? I was retired like seven years ago. So okay. I could have pushed my retirement to say four years ago and worked a little less when I was a youngster. I'm a lunatic, you know, and nothing really stops me. I'm just that action person that just try and take life by the ball, by the horns and go for it. And I've pretty much done everything I've ever imagined I'd want to do. Traveled the mm. world, dove everywhere, surf everywhere, got a family. I'm, I'm like complete in that way. And that's why I started the nonprofit was okay, a life without purpose isn't worth living. So my purpose back in those days would to be the best craftsman I could, get to retirement, do what I did, I've done that. So now I'm gonna give back to the planet, give back to my uh, family, my kids work in the nonprofit. So they're educating themselves on all of this stuff. They're diving the world, they're having a great experience. Um, that to me is a big win and a big tick on that box. So I'm just going into conservation. And like I say, a life with purpose is now feeling pretty good. I am working in Malibu right now on a few projects because uh, I needed to position myself here for the nonprofit and we're looking to raise a couple hundred thousand because I'm here because I'm around the wealthy people and uh, engaging with a lot of people that are into the ocean so that's why I'm kind of living in Malibu out of retirement for the next few years and then once I'm done with this project we'll have enough money for maybe 10 years worth of parks so I'm hoping. Happy days. So you can get a bit of aggressive fundraising done with the, the, the rich people and get that dollar in and get the good stuff done. Yeah, that's 100%. I'm around it. There's surfers here. There's a lot of people that go to Fiji, Hawaii surfers. You know, there's a lot of guys here that, you know, I can leverage my relationships in the construction business. So I'm kind of like a bit of a mafia dude. So it's like, dude, you want this contract? You donate to my cause. <laughs> you don't donate, you don't get the contract. So everyone's like, yeah, of course we can give you money. We love you. You know what I mean? I'm like, oh, thanks. I didn't want to break your kneecaps. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm leveraging those relationships too but in a good way you know what I mean people are really respectful and yeah. love what we're doing so they're happy to help I think that's the um, admirable thing you've come from an industry which is you know it's not focused on conservation uh, let's let's be fair it's not focused on conservation at all it's all about making money making buildings moving on to the next one and making more money whether it's for yourself your own business or for the businesses that you're you know contracted to or individuals and, and being able to take that success and those links that you've got and now open the eyes to those individuals and say, hey, we're doing all this shit, but what we're doing is missing out on all this goodness over here. So bringing those two together and moving monies from one element into a better environment, I think I've got to applaud you for that. Quite yeah, frankly. so this is the way I look at it, right? So I was chopping a piece of wood in my 20s going, what am I doing, man? This is ridiculous. I hate this. I feel sick to my stomach. I'm chopping trees mm. down. I'm a part of it, right? We're pouring concrete all the time. So then that flicked the switch of conservation. That's at the same time I kind of got into diving and I was a really young person, right? So now every job that I do, I source sustainable materials as much as I can. I flat out don't work with hardwoods anymore. Uh, we were working with Honduras uh, mahogany uh, maybe 20 years ago and I went to my supplier and I said hey you know, I want to get a few board feet we're building this beautiful I don't know 
whatever the hell it was for some rich person and they're like we don't have it i'm like oh when are you going to get it and we said we're not going to get it anymore they've stopped shipping it from honduras because there's no more left i'm like what what are you talking about what do you mean there's no trees left they're like yeah they don't ship it anymore uh so you can't get honduras mahogany in the u.s anymore so it's like that was a big wow. awakening call to me so now you know people are saying oh, i want an ePay deck which is a brazilian hardwood i'm like go get somebody else to do it dude i'm not touching that with a 10-foot barge pole in fact i'm going to tax you if you ever use that on my job or want to push me on that i'll tax you heavily and then you donate as a carbon offset so you know i'm mm. leveraging all those relationships and i point out to people that everything in this industry is an extraction from natural resources from our planet so imagine this for an instance right that the sand that i use for my concrete has had a tax on it from every single stage from the guy digging it out of the pit he pays a small tax like we're talking tiny tax 0.1% tax for conservation. Then it goes to the guy that bags the sand. He pays a tax. Then it goes to the guy at the local hardware store. They pay a tax. Then the builder pays a tax when he buys it to do it on his construction guy. I pay a tax. The homeowner pays a tax. Everybody starts paying a tax on all these resources. Conservation wouldn't be an issue. Everybody would be doing the right thing right now because there would be enough yeah. money funneled into conservation through these simple uh, taxes, conservation tax, on, on everybody because everybody's a part to play in it it's not the guy that's selling the bag of sand it's the guy that dug it up and the guy that's using it and the guy that's living in the house that's benefiting from it so in my opinion all these resources need to be taxed because every single thing in your home just look around for a second look at the microphone the headphones the t-shirts the glass it's all an extraction of a natural resource and they're running out so hey mm. put back in man don't take don't steal i wouldn't be putting up with it if someone came into my house and stole something i'd be giving them a dig and saying what are you doing coming in my house and stealing well we're doing that with mother nature on a daily basis so enough's enough and it's got mm. to stop we've got to step we've got to step up yeah. man we're all a part of it i mean mm. you can't you cannot morally say in any good conscience you have nothing to do with it so everybody's got something mm. to do with it but then how would you i mean if you got that example there that ideal example of getting of taxing everyone along the stream um how, how do you regulate the person that's controlling all of that tax coming in? You know. Well, it's, hopefully it's you would rely to... on an honor. Yeah, hopefully you would rely on an honest government. So if you look at if well, you look at a tax, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's the that's the that's the crux of the whole plan, right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. As soon as politics gets involved and politicians are involved in particular, it goes tits up. Yeah, I understand that, but some but somewhere you can't use all those as excuses not to try. You've got to try yeah. something, right? So you you look at the tax system in the US for instance, you know, there's a certain amount of taxes that are allocated to ocean conservation. I think it's 0.01% goes to conservation, which is <laughs> I mean, it's the largest ecosystem on our planet and 0.01% of the tax cuts go to ocean or uh, grants go to the ocean so that could be increased mm. by 30 percent now yes there's room for corruption but we're talking 0.01 percent up to 20 or 30 percent there'd be huge gains in the environment to be able to be made when you've got that type of resources at your fingertips yeah yeah you know? give it give it to me i'll go do good stuff with it no one gets paid yeah. in our organization we're all doing it for free so it's all just philanthropic that's why i started a non-profit could have been for profit i could have made money doing this but as soon as money gets involved mm. i've been in business long enough to know that i can have a business partner friend for year for years all of a sudden that turn goes real south when money's involved 
So I've never really wanted yeah. money ever involved in a non-profit. I always want to keep it super clean. And I know that everybody who's interested in what we're doing is doing it for the love of the coral, love of the ocean, and love of just the whole process. And money is a byproduct of what we need to do our work. End of story. Yeah, yeah. It's it's unfortunate that it is that enabler that you need, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um I think we've kind of covered this one, but you can emphasize on it. Um, how do or how does your connection with the ocean enrich your life? Okay, so for me, experiential knowledge is the key to living. Okay, so life with purpose, what I was saying, is you know not really worth living. Well, mm. in the same token, experiential knowledge for me is what I want to be uh, thinking on my deathbed. I'm not going to be thinking about the car that I owned. Or the watch I had on my wrist that just cost fifty thousand dollars, or you know the Lambo that I got in the garage. Yeah, that none of that interests me. When I'm on my deathbed, I'm gonna be thinking of my family, the experiences that I've had. So when you look at accumulating experiential knowledge, guess what? I'm gonna be a richer human being because I have the experience of climbing that mountain, hiking in those jungles, swimming in those oceans, surfing those waves. Those are the things that I dream about all the time. I have zero interest in these material objects. They bring me no joy. It's temporary. But what I, when I look back and of my memories, I don't need that content of me uh, filming those surfers 20 years ago. It is as clear in my mind as the day I was shooting it. None of that escapes me. You know what I mean? So accumulation of experiential knowledge. End of story. Lovely stuff. Right up there with you. I don't give a shit. You can see, I, there's no jewelry, no watches, no nothing. It's, um, <laughs> it's all about it's all about the doing and seeing. Yeah, it's a state of mind, right? So, just a quick, like you know, like add on to that. So we, you know, we we have a we've been, I've been retired for seven years. I have a beautiful home. Uh, me mm. and my wife are living in a construction trailer for two for two years, so I can work my non-profit <laughs> Malibu. She's like, I hate this goddamn trailer. We're talking, it's on the job site, piles of dirt around us, machinery going all day long. And I said, listen, you know, for me, it's a state of mind. You know, if if you're if you're a happy person, nothing externally is ever going to like penetrate you. If you're bothered by external stuff, you're doing something wrong in your life. You know what I mean? You see all these stressed out people in the US, especially in Malibu. They're super rich and they get super stressed out about, I don't know, the waiter not showing up with their warm coffee or whatever. It's like, oh, my God, that's that sent you over the edge and you're living in a $10 million home on the beach. It's like, where's your head at? You know what I mean? So if you can keep your consciousness and your mindfulness and your happiness and your core um, you know, core self intact, no matter what's going on around you, you've won in life already, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> 100%. Okay, let's have another one. Ah, uh, how about this one? Um, now for, for anyone who is interested in becoming a conservationist or getting into conservation, um, what words of wisdom would you impart to them? Super simple stop talking about it because you probably told your family members you've probably been going on about it and saying oh, you want to do this you want to do that stop talking about it and go and do something if it's uh planting trees then go plant some trees if it's saving coral do your dive paddy reach out to somebody and say and show up knock on their doors and just get involved there's no 
no time wasted if you just put yourself into an action position now a lot of people don't have a lot of time right so just pick your times mm. pick your battles set your schedules go do it real simple super simple stuff mm. it doesn't have to be these mm. grandiose things right you know i started a non-profit we're doing this huge crap all over the world is like did i need to do that no probably not but that's what keeps me going in life right you could just maybe yeah. go and uh, support your local um guys like my friend in hawaii uh the coral conservancy go and do swimming and planting little pieces of coral just with a snorkel i mean whatever you want to do man it's easy just go and do it that's the whole point hmm yeah i've got a good buddy of mine out in um texas uh justin and he's um we, we met through diving um whilst on holiday a number of years ago now and he got back to texas and you know life's uh, trials and tribulations were pissing him off and getting down and you know it touched base with me and talk about scuba diving it's like just find someone to scuba dive in texas i mean fuck me it's a dry state but there's water near it so just get in the water and go and he created a um a texas scuba divers which is a a, a facebook group and there's there's over seven thousand members in there now and he gets out there once every couple of weeks three weeks whatever it is and just goes and does a beach cleanup and the amount of shit that he's pulling out the ocean and out off the beaches and you know sometimes there'll be two or three people with him sometimes there'll be 10 or 12 people with him but the stuff that he's doing is just it's marvelous and it's um it's super enriching for him he's he's a better person for it he's not um he's not that that depressive young man that he was four or five years ago and pissed off with not going diving he's got something <laughs> that he's targeting and enjoying it's it's fantastic and um, yeah, and what I, it's a long-winded way of saying I agree with you. Just get out there and do it. You know, it doesn't matter how it doesn't matter how big or small it is. Just do it. You know, if it makes you feel happy and it's something good for the world, then do it. Yeah. Yeah, I always say stop hey. complaining about it and go do something. You know. Yeah, 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 yeah definitely. Is there anything that we might have missed that you want to bring up? Any uh, shout-outs or anything like that? Um, you know, like I said earlier, it's a relentless fundraising situation. So, um, I'm going to do those shameless plugs for our organization. Um, we are set on track to probably be around the 200 grand mark by probably next year. Hopefully if all goes well with this mm -hmm. construction work we're doing, uh, we do partner with a lot of great organizations. So if anybody's listening and they've got a, a large business or even a small business, we work with a lot of small businesses, uh, Exhale Coffee, Anarchist Wines, Hair Story. I mean, the list goes on. Um, think about joining the 1% for the Planet. 1% um, for the Planet is an organization that bridges businesses to nonprofits. Uh, now, I'm not doing that just for myself. I'm just doing that from a philanthropic standpoint is to just look at your business model and see if your business model can, you know, afford 1% and that 1% can go to a nonprofit that you allocate to. Um, and then you can bridge partners. So what we do is we don't just say, hey, thanks for the donation. We bugger off and get on with our jobs. We like to do infographics and actually build partnerships. So we'll put you on our website. We'll uh, do infographics, shout out on our social medias. We'll do little videos like Anarchist Wines came to Fiji one of them turned into a board member we did a whole photo shoot with their bottles of wine and the water with the coral on, on on the sculptures their entire centerpiece of our artwork is their laser engraved logo 
and then all the end modules have uh, the large people that donate money. So we got Google, we got CBob, we've got a bunch of like people that donated. We laser engraved the name on a plaque. So now that laser engraved underwater for the next you know few hundred years or wherever long that sculptural park lasts. So we just encourage people to a just look at what's going on in the world if you have the ability to maybe stretch yourself to one percent go join that organization or just reach out to us directly and we'd love to work with you guys and um try and do the good work and we've got a great story so it's great marketing if you look at it from a, a marketing standpoint you don't get anything better than this <laughs> <laughs> you get free content from us it's free content. We'll go do the work. We'll give you the content. You put it on your website. You can now shine bright because you're supporting something that's super cool and you didn't mm. spend a marketing dime. All you did is donated, which is a tax-free write-off anyway. And then the other thing is people, please try and think about this if you're a larger organization and you've got money. Do a personal, um, um, a personal foundation. So you can have your own um, foundation right that is a personal one that's run by your family now you can take up to 30 percent of your revenues and put that into a foundation as a tax-free write-off then you can pay your children to run it and you only have to allocate 7.5 percent of that money to a non-profit so you can be a self-sustaining business entity that you would have given the money to the government but instead of doing that you've created a foundation and you're allocating funds for that foundation and you're paying your kids to run that or your husband or your wife or whoever it is. You have funds in there and it's all better than giving mm. it to the government, my opinion. So just think about ways that you can manipulate the system that is legal completely above board, but you've just never thought about. And that's all I can say is just try and do your best to step up. That's a fantastic you. idea, um, that foundation idea. Um, yeah, I, I need more details on that, I think. And um, yeah, and it doesn't have to be a big yeah. business. It could be small, you know, yeah. small business operation. Okay, mate. Yeah. Well, um, if ever you need, uh, you know, additional hands for mapping and shit like that, I'm only a, a short flight away to Fiji from Sydney. Um, more than well, <laughs> more than happy. Yeah, We'd more than to happy to come on there. over and uh, spend some time. Um, definitely. Um, and all of those links, all of your, your partners that are helping to invest in, and make this work work and happen send me the links i'll put it all in the show notes okay yeah that's brilliant and for the one people that may be interested in the one percent you can go to our profile and see who we're partnered with and see what we've been up to mm. and it's a really cool thing you know it's not a lot of money no, either one percent no. think about it um yeah well mm. on that note i think i will uh let you get some bed rest and um i'll go and get my morning coffee started Jolion, uh, it's been absolutely fantastic uh, talking with you today and thank you for coming on the show and um, keep me abreast of everything that's going on and um, yeah, let's get an update done in like 12 months or so see, see how much progression has occurred Yeah, I'd love that. And thanks for having us on, Matt. It's super, super grateful to be able to, you know, connect with you and connect with your audience because, you know, one of our big objectives is awareness drivers. So the more I get to talk, the more I get to share the stories, the more that information gets out to people and the more we can open and expand our minds to the realities that are actually coming down upon us because a lot of people are blindfolded to the situations that are going on. And that could be for many different reasons, you know, bogged down mm -hmm. with life whatever 
But these are sometimes what I like to think about as light at the end of the tunnel. If you can start to have a life with purpose and you can see maybe a small bit of hope and all you got to do is put a few small action steps in line for yourself, you're going to be a joyful and more rounded full person because you're moving forward to something positive and with an outcome that can be beneficial to everybody, no matter what that is in life. So I just I'm so happy that I get to spread this awareness and chat with people and encourage people to do good in in the, in the world, you know. Happy days. So thank you. Uh, thanks to you as well. Um it's been an absolute pleasure, Julian. Thank you very much. This Bye for now everybody. Go, go, go. Under the, sea. the podcast for the inquisitive diver.